0: So we are in a series on politics, and as a result, a couple of friends of mine sent me posts just in the last couple of days. Uh, The first one, which I thought was hilarious, was a lawn sign that simply said, giant meteor 2020, let's just end it all. Kinda hopeless, frankly. And the other one uh, that Pastor Dan actually sent me just this morning said, Jesus isn't on the ballot, and last time he was, we voted for Barabbas. And I think both of those are kind of funny. They're tongue in cheek, but they point to some real challenges. The reality is, in just a few short months, we are going to have a presidential election in our country. And I don't know what the results of that election are going to be. And frankly, the polls that I've read haven't been all that helpful. I mean, one will be absolutely certain that one candidate's going to win, and another one will say the other candidate's going to win. And they're absolutely certain. So this week, as I was doing a little bit of research, I did a quick survey of these polls to try to figure out, get a sense of where the nation is at. And, and while I'm not an expert on the American political system, it seems to me that we can be fairly certain of, of one of two outcomes in this. Uh, either the current administration will stay in office or they won't. I mean, I think those are the two choices that we have. And again, I'm not an expert, but I think these are the two most probable outcomes of the election. But what's interesting to me is that as as I've been talking to so many friends and family members, so many people about this, I see some very similar reactions, sort of on both sides of of those possibilities, those probabilities. I mean, for those who support the current administration, the idea of a new administration coming in, taking over seems like the end of the world. I mean, everything is gonna fall apart if that happens. It's all doom, it's all terrible. But for those who don't support the current administration. The idea of that person staying in office would just be sort of a continuation of the end of the world, continuation of the terrible, a continuation of the doom. Unless we can get a new man in that seat, it's all doom. But then there's a third reaction that I've seen, and this one is perhaps the most common reaction. It's sort of this just hopeless resignation, like, I don't really like either of these choices. I don't like either of these candidates. So I I guess I'll vote, but I'm not hopeful. We're kind of doomed either way. And so the common theme in sort of all three of these reactions is this idea of doom of a future that is unknown and unsure and probably bad. And that's sort of propagated by social media and by the 24-hour news channels that that kind of turn this into a high-stake drama that's consuming us with the stories of conspiracy and crimes and all sorts of peripheral tales. It's turned into sort of a bit of political circus. How do we engage in this political circus in ways that are helpful, patriotic, civically responsible, but perhaps most importantly, Biblical, how do we as the people of God not simply get drawn into the political drama, but instead engage in our culture, engage in this process in ways that are biblical and God honoring? How do we engage in this political process not driven primarily by what we fear or what the media is trying to tell us or what social media curates for us, giving us only the messages that we already believe in anyway, but instead how do we allow God to shape our views? How how do we allow God to direct our paths as we respond politically? That's what we're looking at in this series. And today we want to look at uh, one story from the history of the people of God that helps illustrate how God directed those people in those times to engage in their culture. The Old Testament book of Jeremiah is truly the story of the people of God experiencing Do them, experiencing sort of the end of the world, the end of their nation. It's a story that's full of intrigue and drama and politics and corrupt leaders and bad kings. For generations, the leaders of Israel had been corrupt. They had turned away from God and they had, had made alliances with other godless nations in order to protect their own self interests. But not just the kings. I mean, the people of these nations as well had turned away from God and had begun to worship these man made things. And so the prophet Jeremiah appears and he warns them, unless they turn away from those other alliances, those other reliances, and rely on God and worship God alone, unless they did that, then God would remove his protective hand and would allow the the godless powers of the region to just run roughshod over them. The superpower of the day back then uh, was the kingdom of Babylon, the Babylonian empire. And for 20 years, the the armies of Babylon had been tormenting and raiding and pillaging the people of Judah. And then around 600 BC, or, or 600 years before Jesus was born, King Nebuchadnezzar II and his army finally breached the walls of Jerusalem, and they entered the city, and they tore down the temple, and they burned down the whole city. It really was sort of the end of a nation. It really was doom for them. I mean, Judah had lost their kingdom, their promised land, the favor of God. They'd lost their homes and their livelihood. Many of them were killed, and those who weren't were dragged away to live as slaves in exile in a foreign land under the reign of an evil, godless king. Only a handful were left, a remnant were left to survive in Jerusalem, the city of God. And so while our current political climate seems really bad, and in a lot of ways it is. What the people of God faced here was was arguably far worse. It was their literal doom, the literal death of their nation. So how did God instruct them to live in that, to engage in that? What we're going to look at today? I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. It's one of the books of the prophets. We're going to turn to chapter 29, starting in verse 1. Let me read. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. See, Jeremiah was his prophet, sort of a, a reluctant prophet who didn't necessarily want to proclaim these words that God gave him, but it did it at any rate, followed God's lead at any rate. And he's one of the few, the remnant that were left behind in the destroyed city of Jerusalem and he writes this letter to the exiles in Babylon, and he writes it on behalf of God. Here's what he says. This is what Jeremiah's letter said. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he's exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren multiply do not dwindle away this is this is generational language this is long term in it for the long haul language this is not like find shelter it's build homes he doesn't say find food he says plant gardens and then wait for those gardens to yield their produce and then eat that produce he says have children and grandchildren i think this is god telling them it was me who brought you here to this place. I placed you in this godless city with a godless king. And I can use even this godless country and this godless king to accomplish my plans for you and for my kingdom, for my plans. I think there's a note in there for us and there's a place to write this in your notes. God can use even imperfect kings. I think it means for our future, for our hope, those do not lie in what king or what president is in charge. God can and does use broken, imperfect leaders, just like he used broken, imperfect people to accomplish his plans. And I'm not saying we shouldn't vote, that we shouldn't engage. Our vote is critical, and using it and voting and using it wisely is really, really important. But ultimately, our hope isn't in any political party or any candidate. And therefore, our despair, our doom, shouldn't be either. Our hope isn't in them, and ultimately, our despair can't be either. But then God goes on and He gives them more direction. I think these are very, very helpful, very, very practical. We have a role to play, God says. Verse seven, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray. To the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Here he uses the language of a city, but the reality is the city was the empire. This was the capital, Babylon, and the empire was the king, was Nebuchadnezzar. So when he says, Pray for the city, pray for the welfare, it is pray for this man, pray for this empire. Think about how counterintuitive that is. Work for the peace and the prosperity of your enemies, for the very people who destroyed your homes and businesses. Work for the prosperity of those who killed your neighbors and stole your livestock. And pray. Pray for the very people that destroyed the temple of God. Pray for the people that made you exiles in this foreign land. How hard must that have been? How difficult would it be to read these words from God for his people living in exile And I think it's really counterintuitive for us as well. I think for many of us, it's relatively easy to work for the prosperity and to pray for the prosperity of the political party or the candidate that we like. But what about the other party? And what if your party doesn't win? I mean, would you really be willing to work for the prosperity of your government if the other party wins this year? Would you be willing to pray for the prosperity of the other party's candidate? I mean, I'm not being partisan in this. I think for many of us, the idea of praying for political enemies is counterintuitive. I mean, it feels almost wrong. For many of us, the idea of praying for either Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell feels wrong. I don't just mean it feels hard. I mean, it feels wrong. These people stand for things that we don't necessarily agree with, that we wouldn't vote for, that we don't see aligning in Scripture. How do we work for their good? How do we pray for their prosperity? This is hard stuff. And yet, God's people are called to do two things in this passage and in our world today. There's a place to write these down. We are called to work for the good of our leaders, and we're called to pray for the good of our leaders. Two clear things from this passage. And some of us, I think, are better at or are more comfortable at working for the good rather than praying for the good. Chris said that, I think, in week one. And I know I am. Chris said he he struggles with regularly praying for our leaders. And I know I do as well. And yet prayer is something that all of us as followers of God, prayer for our leaders is something we're called to do. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, goes into even more details. I'm going to be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Paul says pray for all people, not just the ones you agree with, all people. Unless we think that we're exempt from needing to pray for the leaders of that other political party, Paul goes on to say in the next verse these words, Pray this way for kings and for all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. I think there's a couple of things that we could take away from the short passage. First of all, Paul says, first of all, pray. For many of us, like I said, we're more comfortable with the idea of working for the good of our nation through our political involvement and posting on social media and voting, and all those things are good. Okay, I'm not not super sure that posting political stuff on Facebook is good. I think that's just destructive. But at any rate, all those things are good, but Paul says, first of all, before you do any of those things, pray. And how should we pray for our leaders, even the ones we don't like? Well, Paul gives three ways, three very specific ways that we are to pray for our kings and for all who are in authority. This is directly from verse one. This isn't my, these aren't my words. These are Paul's words. He says, first, we are to ask God to help them. And that is challenging. How do we ask God to help them if, if we don't agree with the things that they're doing? And yet that is our command. Paul commands us to intercede on their behalf, bringing our requests for them before God, and then finally, to give thanks for them. I think for many of us, I think for most of us, we can imagine praying this way for the candidate that we like, for the party that we like, but can you even imagine praying that God would help the other candidate? Can you imagine thanking God for the other candidate? candidate. Again, I'm not being partisan. I think many of us would struggle to do this for Trump or for Biden, depending on whatever your political leanings are. But here's the thing. One of them is going to be the president, like hundred percent chance. It's going to be one of those two. Okay. Not a hundred percent, but really, really good chance. I don't know which one, but either way, I know that about half the country is going to be disappointed And even the disappointed followers of God are commanded to pray for whomever is elected. What if we started practicing that now? Before we cast our vote. Before we post any more rhetoric on Facebook. Before we spend any more effort trying to influence the election. Before we even know the outcome of the election. What if we started practicing that sort of prayer now? on your notes page, which you can get by clicking the link below. We've included sort of this election 2020, politics 2020 weekly prayer guide. And there's a place to fill these in as well. It's a daily prayer guide to help us pray in a biblical way for the political process between now and November 3rd, when we actually go to the polls. Here's the first. On Monday, pray for your local leaders. And for many of you, myself included, I may need to do some work to find out who those local leaders even are. Pray for your mayor, for your school board, for your city council. Pray for your local leaders, even the ones you don't like, who you would never actually vote for. Even the ones you would have a hard time having a conversation with because they're running the city or the school district into the ground and you just can't stand the way they're doing things. Pray for them. Pray that God would help them. Intercede on their behalf, asking God to give them wisdom as they make difficult decisions. Pray that they would come to know God, that they would experience Jesus in their life, that they would become more like Christ. And then thank God for them, even if you don't like them, even if you don't agree with them. And then on Tuesday, pray for our state leaders. I have said so many times over the last several months during COVID that I have never been so glad to not be the governor. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> I've always wanted to do that. And the, the crew is here to do it. That's awesome. I've never said so many times that I'm glad not to be the governor. But I've also not prayed much for that governor or for his Republican opponents in the House. The truth is, I, I haven't lived this out. And so on Tuesdays, I encourage you to pray for our state leaders, even the ones you disagree with. On Wednesday, pray for our national Leaders. Now, this might be getting harder for some of us. Pray for our president, but also for the other names that we hear so much on the news. That one senator that makes you crazy. That one congressperson that you would give an earful to if you ever ran into them on the street. Pray for them. Pray for their processes. Pray for their conversion. Pray for their wisdom. And thank God for them. And then on Thursday, and I think for most of us, this will be the hardest yet. I would invite you to pray for the candidate you don't plan to vote for. Again, I'm not saying who that should be. I'm guessing you already knew, you already know who you won't be voting for and why. And how are we to pray for that despicable, misguided person that you would never vote for? Well, in exactly the same manner. We're supposed to pray for them, not against them. Like, God, please don't let this knucklehead win but instead pray for them. Pray for their wisdom. Pray for their knowing God. Pray for God to work in their lives. Pray for ways to build them up and thank God for them. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount said these words. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. On Thursday, pray for the candidate you don't plan to vote for. And then on Friday, having done all of that, pray for the candidate that you do plan to vote for. (laughs) Pray all those same things for them, that God would help them, intercede for them, thank God for them. This one may be the easiest, but I would encourage you to not just do the Friday prayer, the one that comes most easily to most of us. First, pray all those others. Pray for all those others for whom it is much more difficult to pray. Not only is that biblical, not only is that obedient to God's commands and effective in actually changing our world, it's also effective at changing us. It it can affect and cause change and growth in us. Eugene Cho, in the book that we've been recommending, Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk, says these words, Prayer is the ultimate antidote to dehumanization I think all of the voices right now that are speaking into this want to dehumanize and make monsters out of the candidates and out of their parties. It is hard, however, to dehumanize someone and see them as an enemy. It's hard to hate someone that we are praying for. It's hard to sling mud or social media on social media for someone who we are praying for. And frankly, our needers, these candidates, they need our prayer on both sides. Of the aisle, and so that's it. I mean, on Saturday and Sunday, pray for whatever you pray for whatever you want. But you may be surprised to find yourself returning to these themes of lifting up our election, lifting up our leaders, and asking God for wisdom for ourselves. Which brings us kind of to the end of this. I, before we leave Jeremiah, I want to return just for a minute. Next verse. This is what the Lord of Heaven's Armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams, because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Apparently, in their day, there were people who claimed to be prophets, who claimed to speak for God, who had all kinds of stories for the people of God on how they should live and how they should respond. And God warns them to believe only in him, only in his word and only in his promises. I think as we face the next couple of months, the rhetoric from both sides, the the misinformation from both sides is only going to increase, but we may only recognize the lies of the other side. Both sides will claim either overtly or in more subtle ways that God is on their side, but we may only recognize the lies of the other side. I think this word can be a warning for us. Be very discerning in your sources. Be very discerning in what you choose to believe. Not everyone claiming to speak for God is actually speaking for God. But I think this warning that God gives them is also an opportunity, an invitation for us to pray. Finding the truth in these next months will only get more difficult. Social media is only going to feed you more of what you already believe to be true. What if rather than letting the media shape our politics, social media shape our view, we intentionally see this as a time to fervently pray, both for our leaders and future leaders, but also that God would grant us wisdom and discernment, a vision of His Plans for this world. The ability to steward our right and our privilege to engage in voting in a way that's glorifying first and foremost to God. That that we would, in the words of Paul, live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity, which stands in such huge contrast to the rhetoric and sort of the vitriol of this season of election. Jeremiah has an admonition, a warning, but then also a promise. A promise that's probably familiar to many of us, even if we don't know that it came from this context. This is what the Lord says. You'll be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I've promised, and I'll bring you home again. God has placed us in this time, in this season, for a reason. And he knows what he wants to accomplish in us and through us if we'll let him. Verse 11 For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Perhaps no one exemplified this, this model of living in godliness and dignity and peace that Paul talks about like the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus chose to enter our time during during a time of tremendous political upheaval. Rome was the superpower of the day and it was ruled by an emperor who claimed to be God. Israel was occupied by that very superpower. And Jesus chose that time. He could have chosen any time in history, but he chose that time to come when people wanted a political solution to a very significant political problem. The people wanted him to join their fight, to overthrow the Romans, or, or to collaborate with them and to keep the peace with the Romans. They wanted Jesus to choose a side. But Jesus chose to respond very differently. Jesus chose a different well, he, he chose to engage in love. He, he chose to engage by pointing to and modeling a very different kingdom, the kingdom of God. He invited them and us to see the world the way that God sees it. And then he said that by the power of his Holy Spirit, we might have that same mind of Christ, that same vision Of Christ that prays for God's kingdom to come in this world as it is in heaven, that that can see the world not through the lens of our political parties or through the lens of all of the political circus, but can see through all of that using the lens of the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in us as we work for the good of our kingdom and as we pray for the good of our leaders. Join me in praying that the Holy Spirit would allow us to engage in this season in a way that honors God, but also reflects His kingdom. God, we pray that during this season, um, as we are trying to figure out how do we engage as your people in what just feels like such a contentious and, and often just so ugly political process, God, how, how do we engage in that way that brings honor to you? We acknowledge that it is you. Scripture tells us that it is you who appoints kings and authorities over us. You, you've told us how it is we are supposed to live. And yet the working out of that in our daily lives, the working out of that in the way that we vote and in the way that we talk about politicians and, and the way that we anticipate the future, God, all of that is so tricky. God, I pray you give us wisdom, that you would guard our tongues as we speak about these candidates guard our fingers as we post and type about these candidates. God, empower us to bring light into this darkness, to bring your peace into this battle, to bring your hope into a situation that for many feels so hopeless. God, may we as your followers, but may we as a nation, come to recognize that our primary hope, our, our fundamental hope is in you and you alone. God, take this season to call us back to you. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen.